Scott Harrower is an Australian theologian teaching at Ridley College in Melbourne. He's also an ordained Anglican minister. He was brought up by missionary parents in Argentina and has wide-ranging ministry experience in several countries. Scott has a lovely pastoral way of holding together the big picture of the Christian redemption narrative alongside the practical needs of real-life people. He never forgets to lament the quality and quantity of human suffering. He treats the experience of trauma with great seriousness. With all of it in view, he keeps an eye towards the hope that Jesus provides, towards shalom, and attends to one of his areas of expertise, why the idea of a triune God matters in a Christian response to the horrors of the world. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Check it out. Yeah, it's been really good to work with Theo Syke in the, the Image of God seminar and the Recovering one. It was a great experience, really good bringing in psychology and theology and science. It's been great. Yeah, Justin mentioned today that you reached out to him recently because you're applying to another program, right? Yeah, I am. Yeah, cool. in God of All Comfort, I deal with how God the Trinity works to share his perspective with us so that we might see the world and new, um, see meaning and new, look for hope in others and in him. But my mm -hmm. question in this new seminar is, well, how about demonic agency? Mm. So if God the Spirit works to help us to choose those things that are good for us by nature, so healthy relationships with others, healthy relationships with himself, being a safe person for others, acting morally towards others, they're all good things. Well, demonic agency seems to make us or to be part of the complex of us choosing things that aren't good for us. So choosing vice, not virtue, choosing to act selfishly, choosing to not recognise the boundaries that other people have, working against recognising their fundamental goodness. So I'd like to draw on um, psychology and um, philosophies of causation and explanation to think about demonic agency because what I've noticed in literature to do with trauma recovery and horrors is that people are happy to speak about spiritual agency with respect to God in recovery. So a few people happy to talk about that but basically no one is happy to talk about well where does the demonic fit in within horror making mm. and it's so weird that Netflix is leading the way because they're happy to do movies and um, documentaries and stuff <laughs> on the demonic and mm -hmm. how it's connected to us doing perverted things. But for some reason, Christians aren't happy to write about how it may occur. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit of a, I, I, it's a bit of an original proposal. I'm sort of putting it in thinking that some people will be freaked out and think it's really weird. But I think that unless <laughs> we can sort of, help explain how demons may be involved and the dark side of spiritual agency in our churches we're just going to keep on thinking it's a fantasy mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. so yeah it's interesting i i sort of assumed that you would be if you thought that like horror films or horror tv shows were a positive or negative i would kind of think like oh he probably thinks that we shouldn't be entertained by such things or something but now knowing you i know that you don't take that position no. you actually think yeah. it's good in a way it's a good because and i know uh, you're very inspired by flannery o'connor as well which yeah sure sort of a yeah totally 
I think horrors are, and horror, the horror genre is a good thing because it shatters the illusion that life is safe and that we can make it safe. Hmm. You know, I think that in, you know, in a classic horror episode or movie, you've got the person who thinks they've got it all together and then suddenly something flies through the window um, to remind them this world is fundamentally unsafe. <laughs> and in our experiences of horror and trauma, you know, that's what happens. You, you go from, oh, yeah, I'm just going to drive to work, but on the way to work something horrific happens and it just reminds you life is not safe and stable. We're not living in shalom anymore. So I think horror movies are actually a good thing because they remind you of that. So I'm super glad to shatter your expectations of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember you and I had a conversation about art and music and your background, mm-hmm. which I found fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it was really nice uh, for me to talk uh, to someone who is engaged in art and literature and music. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't think that everyone like has to be into horror, but but I, well, yeah, for the same that. reason. It, yeah. yeah. But you should be engaged with the realities of the world in some way. Like the yeah, person sure. who, oh, I can't watch horror because it's too dark. Okay, that's fine. But like, do you read the news? Do you like, <laughs> are yeah. you engaged with the reality that we live in? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I recognize, so for example, there's some kinds of horror that I can't watch. So I became mm-hmm. a committed yeah, Christian through deliverance. So for me, those movies to do with demonic possession, demonization, Ouija boards, that just scares the hell out of me because I was there and that's awful. But I can watch like idiotic zombie series or really good ones like Black Summer is one of my favourite ones because they remind me of that fundamental lack of safety. So I'm not saying everybody should read them, but I think as a genre it is a good thing from Mm -hmm. a philosophical perspective. Gotcha. I just wanted to zoom out and like back up. We kind of just naturally started talking about some stuff, but let's like backtrack a little bit. And if you could answer the question of what you consider your vocation to be, I know you have some different jobs. So however you want to summarize, like what the work is that you do, or even if you have like an organizing question that guides your work or or something like that. The organizing question for me, and it's been a longstanding one, is what is God doing in the world? What, what has he done? What is he doing? What will he do? When I became a committed Christian, it was through deliverance and in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So my question is a Trinitarian question. What is God the Trinity doing in the world? And I'm happy to go with wherever God the Trinity leads me to be an agent in his hand whereby he brings healing. So that means I'm happy to work in healing in terms of mentoring. So I do group and individual mentoring. I'm happy to lead churches in healing. So I've been a church pastor before. I'm also interested in healing the structures of academia. So I think there are lots of questions that academia ignores um, or or pushes to the side because they're too uncomfortable, they're too supernatural. And I think that's a big problem. So in my academic work, I'm trying to heal the structures of academia. So basically, I'm involved in the work of God the Healer as an agent in his hands and wherever he leads, that's fine. So I find myself doing lots of different things, but the big question is what is God doing in the world? That's an excellent answer. I love that. And when did you start to feel that you wanted or needed to engage the sciences in some of in answering some of those that question and sub questions? Yeah, sure. So my first degree was in science. And yeah, so when I first started to grow as a Christian and to really embrace being a Christian, I was working in research in a major hospital. So for me, they've never been 
divorced or separate things. I see them as describing the same events, but in different ways. And so they've always been complementary. And yeah, the, the context in which I've worked, mainly, you know, in Australia, but also in the States, has been with people who, who are tradespeople. So they're builders and carpenters and all that kind of thing, as well as professionals in the sciences. And I, I think that there's a strong Sunday-Monday connection. God's involved in, in your carpentry. He's involved in your research. He's involved in your work as a teacher or podcaster. And, yeah, the sciences and theology just have different perspectives on the same things. So it's really just been a natural fit for me. Yeah, and then um, moving back to the the book you wrote, God of God of All Comfort, correct? Is that the title? Yeah, God, God of All Comfort. comfort. Yeah. God of All Comfort, which is about trauma and horrors. Do you, do you think you could tell us a little bit about the story that book tells and then define how you how you mean horrors? Yeah, so that that's a book about how God the Trinity responds to horrors in the world. So it begins by talking about Shalom and God's good creation and what it is that we are created as moral, relational beings in healthy relations with one another. And then I bring in the idea of horrors, which is basically when we use our capacities as God's images to work in immoral ways, but because we're such competent and powerful beings as images, we can do horrific things. And when we willingly or, or through neglect act in such a way that doesn't recognise the fundamental goodness and the rights of other people, we inflict horrors on them. So we might violently assault them or sexually assault them or crush them in the workplace, the way bosses crush people's wills. And what we're doing there is basically we're diminishing them and their capacity to flourish as the image of God. We're um, allowing a life to be sapped away from them and they don't flourish and they aren't present for other people to flourish with them. So it's not just a problem for the individual who gets assaulted, but it's a problem for everyone else around them as well because they can't flourish together. And the big thing about horrors is that horrors are something from which you don't ever fully recover. So someone may be assaulted in the Walmart car park and you just don't recover from that. Life doesn't return to the track on which you were going. Your life may still be good and have lots of meaning and be really helpful to others, but it's not the same track that you were on. And horrors often kick off a trauma response. So that's the connection between horrors and trauma because trauma is medically defined as an experience of death or near death or sexual assault in which you feel overwhelmed. And because of that overwhelming experience of horrors, say when you're being um, beaten, you go through an experience that your mind really struggles to integrate. Trauma is really a problem of the memory. You've got this memory of an experience that you weren't expecting. It doesn't fit into your usual perspective and assumptions about life. And that's why you have flashbacks. It keeps on coming back because your brain's like, what do I do with this experience? And because that's such a hard thing to reintegrate into your life, you spend so much energy on that, that trauma also becomes a problem of energy. You just don't have the energy to engage with other people and be that creative, relational, moral um, person for the good of others in the same way. You're just exhausted trying to cope with the trauma response to horrors. So horrors can be events that happen in time and space, like getting bashed, or they can be in our minds. They can be subjective things. They can be real fears and say paranoia, 
is part of it. And that's just as sort of deteriorating for us and others as horrors that happen in time and space. There can be big horrors, gross horrors, say being mutilated by someone, or there can be commonplace ones, which is basically death by a thousand cuts. If every time you deal mm. with a family member, they are mm. cutting you down and reducing you and diminishing you and manipulating and lying to you. Well, <clears throat> that's a commonplace horror. It is a horror because it diminishes who you are as an image mm. of God. So there are different kinds of horrors. And what I want to make sure I do in this book is explain why horrors are horrors against the background of Shalom with God and one another, and then go on to say, well, how does God uh, heal us? How does he restore safety, a sense of self and community, which the psychiatric sciences suggest are required to recover from horrors and trauma, sense of self, sense of safety and belonging mm -hmm. to a community. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I sort of explain the uniqueness of Christian recovery and I bring that together with sciences and I say that as Christians, we actually have this unique hope that's available to us, which is God's working in our life, which is a special, wonderful thing. So Christians should expect a form of recovery from horrors, which means that life isn't merely horrific, it's tragic, but it's not bogged down by horrors and it doesn't end in horror. So the ending of the story is different and life starts to take a turn, but it's still tragic. You seem like someone who probably, even before your whatever academic journey, intuited horrors, like was in tune with a sense of horror in the world and maybe experienced some yourself, like I'm sure. What did, what did studying scientifically trauma responses, how did that help you in your own understanding of what you were intuiting as maybe a, just a Christian or a human being? Does that make sense? Yeah, look, it makes a lot of sense. As part of my work in the hospital, I worked quite a bit in uh, the trauma and emergency room. So I spent a lot of time with um, family members and survivors as well in their experience of horror, and I could see their bewilderment, and I could see how life had changed, and then they would come in months and months later, and I could just see the way that a family's life was knocked off track. And that comes in the background of growing up in Argentina, in the middle okay. of a civil war and people were disappearing and the mums were walking around with placards with photos of their kids that the military were kidnapping and dumping in the river and drowning and so forth. So I knew that there was a profound effect that horrors and trauma had on people. And fortunately, through my degree and then also through the library at the hospital, I had access to a great medical database and lots of journals. So I wanted to be able to understand better what was going on for the people in the emergency department and in the outpatient clinic with whom I was doing follow-up. So I started reading journals during my breaks. Like it's honestly as, as simple as that. Oh. You know, on my break, I just go to the library and just try to unpack what was going on so that I could be more helpful to people. So it, the again, the integration between the intuitive experience, something's wrong here, something's changed, this is profound, it's going to have a long-lasting effect. That intuitive reaction was matched, thankfully, by the high-level library at this major teaching hospital. And the fact that they made journals available to everyone was great. That is great. I think a real plus having a science degree is that I could read the journal articles because sometimes 
you know, they are very like maths like and they've got graphs and it, it's a little bit like hieroglyphics. Yeah, um, that's a hurdle. Yeah. The tricks, which is to uh, read the introductions, skip the tables and just go to the discussion. Also <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. Or at least the and abstract. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I, had, I had some really good friends in the hospital as well who could decipher things when I didn't really understand method and all that. So a lot of it was just God's, you know, good timing. He had me in that hospital so I could really get into that literature and explain what I was ex experiencing. Do you find that sometimes the, uh, I don't know, pastoral or theological responses to suffering and evil and horrors in the world are left wanting by not having such a detailed or a deep understanding of the, of trauma and such and related topics? Yeah, so I work at a seminary at the moment, and I've worked in, in four seminaries. And one of the key issues with the, the formation of pastors is that it's difficult to go deep in a number of areas within the same degree. So depending on the inclination of your seminary, they're going to choose different sort of emphases. So, for example, I believe that the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology is close to you. Sarah, yeah. and they're great because they're known to want to integrate theology and psychology really well for the sake of pastoral practice. And I love that. Mm -hmm. So I think the key is um, that we need to make sure that we have some healthy emphases that are going to prepare our students to pastor well. And I'm not convinced that we always have sufficient attention given to that. Also, there's a pressure these days for students because they're mostly studying part-time, they're juggling a thousand other things, it's easier for them to fall back on, say, Bible exegesis subjects than actually discover a whole new discipline. Right. So, yeah. So what, what I did this semester, for example, is I had a Trinity class, like the whole semester was about the doctrine of the Trinity. But what I did was for five weeks one hour of the three-hour block was spent discussing different chapters of God of all comfort to get them to think Trinity and pastoral care, to get them to mm. integrate. So I think a lot of it falls on the professors to go, okay, we're doing such and such a doctrine, but we need to tie it in with science and pastoral practice. Mm. So I think there's good motivations there, but sometimes the way syllabi are constructed and courses are constructed, there isn't enough time. Yeah, I'll tell you another good um, move that I've been happy about at Ridley College where I study is that over the last couple of years, myself and two friends have pushed the administration into making spiritual formation and an understanding of the self compulsory for every student. And that pays off in terms of paying attention to the person and spiritual formation done well pays a lot of attention to science and psychological science in particular. So I think it's really incumbent on faculty members to say, hey, science really matters. Psychological, social science has a lot to tell us about how we work. And that isn't only the domain of pastoral care, it's the domain of most theology subjects. Right. So for example, in ethics, I teach ethics as well. From our theopsych seminars, I used a lot of psychological literature on thankfulness and how being thankful changes you into a more thankful person. And I tied that with virtue theory, becoming Christ-like. And then I had the science of thankfulness undergirding that. So it can be done. Yeah, it's tricky, I guess, it, but you can do things sort of in tandem and parallel. That's um, right. 
And it would, it's a good idea too, also, because the minute, I mean, just talking about sin and evil, like you can talk about those, those as just like, you know, unformed concepts, you know, Mm. or you can talk Mm. about them in terms of our experience and me, you know, sinning against you as another human being with a body in this world. And it, like you said, it having, there's no horror that exists in a vacuum. Like it always, it's dynamic and it's, you know, it's social, there's social repercussions and all those things. So let's go back to what you said earlier, the intervention or I don't know what you'd call it. The way to recover or heal after after trauma or horrors, restoration of safety, sense of self, and place in a community. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about how Christian spirituality and practice can partner with the psychological concepts involved there? Yeah, sure. So, for example, if we um, think about a sense of safety, that's one of the key things that's lost in horrific and traumatic events. Suddenly you're not in control of your body or yourself. You may not be able to defend yourself and there's a fundamental transgression against you. So the way that you thought safe attachments worked in the world is disrupted, especially if you've been abused by a close family member. You know, you had expectations of those relationships that get shattered. So that means that survivors often have anxious patterns or chaotic patterns of attachment and detachment with others. What God the Trinity does fundamentally is unite us to himself. So by his spirit, he comes to indwell uh, within us. That means that we're never utterly alone and that we have his presence and his healing presence as the beginning of healthy attachments with himself and others. And secondly, all Christians have an attachment with the most perfect person there has ever been, and that is Jesus. And that's why Christian faith and an ongoing relationship with Jesus is vital, because it means that you and I have at least one healthy person with whom we have a healthy attachment in which he will heal us. So Jesus will bring his words to mind, he'll bring his comfort to mind, and he will direct us toward the good. So we'll be able to recognise which voices in our mind are from him and which ones aren't. And the thing is that this attachment that God brings to us through his spirit and through Jesus is direct, but it's also indirect. So, for example, in a healthy relationship with you and everybody else I've met at Theopsych, <laughs> God will mediate his attachment and his reestablishment of safety towards myself. I will see in you and others God's holiness, Jesus Christ-likeness in your faces and your actions towards me. So I suddenly see that actually God is bringing safety to my life and I can be safe with him. And once you have that fundamental sense of safety and you can see how God mediates his qualities healthily through others, then the hope is that the survivor can then become someone on the journey towards healing and then in turn a safe person for others. You regain a sense of agency and you regain a Christ-like ownership of your mind and your body and your soul so that you become available for others. So I think that's the way that a sense of safety is established is God does it directly and indirectly through the church, through Christian friendships, in such a way that, that we regain our place in the world again. 
and he incorporates us into a story. So I can see that there may have been horrific events in someone's life. This is something I do a lot in mentoring. It's to try to help them recognise the larger story of their life and draw the horrific event into that story and help us to understand that our life isn't solely overwhelmed by one or two events. There is more to us. We are adopted as God's children. We are profoundly loved and we're called into holy relationships so we can be creative and good for one another. So re-establishing that sense of safety is something that God does and it's absolutely fundamental for recovery. And the psychiatric literature will, will make the point that a recovery of safety and attachments is fundamental. And what we have as Christians is a, is a Trinitarian explanation of how that can happen. That's really cool. I was going to, okay, two questions that are more theological, I guess, was, well, one was I, there's so much that happens in a traumatic experience that happens in your body, you know, yeah. changes in the brain and in the body that, that cause that there's damage to actually your brain and your body, but, but God is a spirit. Uh-huh. And so I wonder, but then I read in your book, you wrote, write about how that's a good thing that God, because God is a spirit, God is able to, can you say it better than I would <laughs> like co-empathize with everyone? Yeah. Rather, it's not limited to, you know, your geolocation, your space, the way only, I only know a certain number of people. Can you sort of express what I'm trying to say? You... Well, yeah. So one of the big things I, I try to do in this God of All Comfort book is say, is to talk about empathy. So one of the early chapters is for people who haven't been through horrific experiences is a reading of Matthew's gospel through the lens of a trauma survivor, right? Mm. And so that's there to help you empathise with what it's like to read the scriptures as someone mm. who's been through horrific experiences. And then I move to divine empathy. God can empathise generally with all of us because God the Son takes on a human nature and as it says in Hebrews, you know, he struggled, he, he learned obedience, he cries out to God, all that kind of thing. Okay, great. He can generally empathize with Sari. But more particularly, because the Spirit indwells Sari, God the Holy Spirit knows particularly what you've been through and can empathize exactly and precisely with what you've been through, what's happened, and what's required for healing. So that's his specific empathy. But the real kicker is, because God is in every Christian, as well as God knowing what you need for recovery, he knows what me or Justin or Oliver or anyone else in your circles has to draw on to help you. Mm. In 2 Corinthians, there's this fascinating passage where Paul speaks about God putting concern for Paul in someone else's heart so that they would care for Paul. So because God is everywhere and he has specific insight and empathy for us, he knows precisely what you need and precisely what will, will be helpful. And that means that we have to be available to one another to be God's hands as he empathises and knows what's wrong and he knows what's required for healing at just the right time. And so in a sense, it's a mosaic approach to pastoral care and recovery. At certain times, you might need one particular kind of relationship and a certain friend in your life very strongly, but then you also might need more medium-term relationships. And as we look back, I think 
we can see how God has brought certain people and events into our lives to help us recover. So that's mm. God's general and specific empathy for us in the Son and in the Spirit. I really like that. <laughs> I really like that. And as you're speaking, I could think back on my own life and it actually gives a more positive framework to some things that are in a category of loss for me, at least, but I'm sure other people can share this experience of certain relationships that aren't there anymore yeah. for one reason or another. And you're like, oh, but then if, but this, this positive reframe of thinking of God's provision through certain people loving you in a certain way through certain people for a certain time. That's and it's right. like, okay, now there's, this is a new chapter. There's new things yeah. we got to do. There's new things mm -hmm. we got to work on. Yeah. Yeah. And so their skills and their particular insights right now might not be as relevant and urgent to you, but they might actually be caring for someone else. Right. So three steps true. behind you. So in a sense, recognizing those boundaries and limitations of relationships and gifts and moving on is sometimes a really good thing because you're releasing each other to minister to others in different ways. That's beautiful, Scott. <laughs> I really like that. Wow. I was going to ask you, you talk about shalom mm. and sort of how the world ought to be. You can, you, you draw on the Edenic picture you know, yeah. where human beings is, are walking with God in the cool of the day yeah, and that unbroken relationship with God and with each other. And I wonder, do you think also, well, I, I was thinking about this Judith Lewis Herman, who, who uh, identified those three categories of restoration of safety, yeah. sense of self and place and community. And I wonder how that maps on for you and your thinking when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and how the church is supposed to manifest the kingdom of heaven in this broken world. So shalom, kingdom of heaven, do those things relate? Do they map on? What do you think of that idea? Yeah, I think, you know, you're right. Jesus' teaching is about the kingdom of heaven. And so testing any theological claim by how it relates to the kingdom of heaven is a really good move. <laughs> so Thank <right>. you. <laughs> It's brilliant. So the kingdom of heaven is, as Jesus uh, teaches, it revolves around love for God and for one another. And that's what we see in these flourishing, wholesome relationships in the Garden of Eden. It's that God loves people. He's with them. He's present with them. And they love him and one another. And they relate well to creation as well. So basically, Jesus is trying to restore this kingdom of love in action and in the way that people gather, use their bodies, relate to one another in business, in sexual relations, in parenting, he covers it all. And so it's, it's a return to love and to understanding ourselves as images of God that are fundamentally in these moral, creative relationships with one another, where we see each other as love worthy and we act to put into place societal structures and also we act in every way to love one another again. So the kingdom of God is basically a sphere that is other person centered. Mm. So when I'm with any other person, I'm always sort of thinking this is an image of God who are made for holy and loving relations. And that sets the expectations for how I should relate to them. And mm. I think um, also like St. Paul, when he's uh, talking and writing, 
what he's wanting for the churches aren't these corrupted, perverted relationships in which the rich behave one way and they treat the poor really badly or <laughs> sexual relations are out of control or you've got to be like a super apostle as in, you know, to Corinthians and be mega impressive. No, this is the realm of God in which every person matters and God takes us as we are in our brokenness so that we're free to love. I think that's the big thing. The kingdom of heaven is the place in which you become free to love others, and that's a very difficult thing to do, but God enables us to do that. And that's the beginnings of the restoration of shalom. And you see it in churches and in relationships where people are welcome, where, for example, we have a child-safe policy in our church in the wake of sexual abuse awful decades. And the child-safe policy for me is an example of the kingdom of heaven in a concrete way because it makes sure that every child is, is valued, recognised and safe and built up in our community and nothing horrific or traumatic will occur with them. So I see a continuity between shalom as the ideal, the kingdom of God around love and respect, and then how we live in practice, for example, having child-safe policies in our churches. Mm. Yeah, a lot of times as I think about how having science-informed theology and Christian practice comes in a lot with just knowing how to love your neighbor better, mm -hmm. you know, like science has observations about, you know, what predatorial behavior might look yes. like and yes. that informs how we can protect our children better, which is part of the kingdom of heaven, you know? Yeah, right, yeah. Um, My wife is, is a social worker and she oh, right. works with, male perpetrators of domestic violence and she's a Christian and she draws a lot from the science of like to toxic masculine relationships, attachment theory, group decision making to help her in running these groups for men to recover essentially being healthy human beings. And so the science alerts us to what may have gone wrong sociologically and in terms of that individual, the perpetrator. And with the information from science, uh, my wife can then move forward and then guide them in healthy ways. So, I mean, I think science is just super important to what we do. That's, yeah, that's serious ministry right there. <laughs> Would you mind if we pivot? Like, do, sure. do you want to talk about your other project a little bit about personhood and yeah, what that's right. about? Yeah, sure. So it was lovely during the first Theopsych meeting to meet Ryan Peterson and Juan Frank. Ryan's mm. from Biola in Los Angeles and Juan is from Austral University in Argentina. And the three of us were fortunate enough to gain a grant to research how science and theology might come together to better understand persons and what it is to be a person in the world, a person in uh, space and time. And so we've been working together as a group on Zoom and we're um, having a conference next week at the Rosemead School of Theology, which is going to be great, and then put out a journal um, issue with articles on what it means uh, for God and for us to be persons rather than mere individuals. So a big burden of the project has been to think about relationality and how relationships and communication constitute who persons are and therefore what that means. 
So it's been a, a really excellent project. We're inviting psychologists um, and uh, philosophers to join us. And we're getting together and trying to role model cross-disciplinary insights, but also listening to one another. So one of the things that's been really helpful for me is to know that I came into thinking about persons from a certain perspective, but the more informed I am with more recent studies in psychology and social studies in particular, the richer my account of a person has become. It's not that your ideas get wiped out. It's just that you can explain things on more levels once you can take science into account for your theology. And so God of All Comfort really came out of being in conversation with many layers of science to describe a person in a rich way. And we've continued to do that work in this Theosite project. So I'm really grateful. The friendships we've cultivated have been excellent. So in a sense, the, <laughs> the team is trying to embody what we're learning about being persons in good communicative relationships. So it's been lovely. Yeah, this, I mean, I guess that your projects all tie together, but something I kept thinking about with, or something I've thought about for a while with trauma and trauma causing events is there's always something about the experience where you're treated as less than human. There's yeah. a de there's always a dehumanizing factor yeah. where you're treated, you know, I don't know, like a, less than what we, especially as Christians with ideas about, I guess, the Imago Dei or whatever you think of that. Mm -hmm. And then, and that what damage it causes a, a person to be treated as less than a person, yeah. you know? So probably this research project really layers that. Are there any salient findings on the, well, are, maybe you could talk about like what, what's, what particular concepts are salient on the theological side in regards to personhood? I guess you're talking about relationality, but can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, so from a theological perspective, one of the key works in terms of what a person is from Joseph Ratzinger, who is Pope Emeritus, um, Benedict XVI. And he says that Christians understand persons from the perspective of the incarnation. So when you see God, the word becoming incarnate and living as a person, that's your starting point for understanding what a person is. A person is always in a faithful relationship with God, communicative, healthy uh, relationships with others, creative for the sake of good and so forth. So from a theological perspective, it's the incarnation that really guides us as to what a person is. And very interestingly, it seems that Christian theology has really influenced how persons are understood in the West. That's how strong that influence has been. So ideas to do with personal dignity and boundaries and rights come from evaluation of the person as made by God and made for certain kind of healthy relationships. What psychological and social sciences add to this is that they help us understand what it is to be whole and healthy as a person in these relationships. So one theory we're drawing on is called dialogical self theory, which thinks about the multifaceted aspects of being a person and having certain relationships with others in time and space. But then also in your own reflection, you might go home from meeting with someone and have conflicting voices about how to interpret these things. 
And those conflicting voices are given some resolution when you're in healthy relationships with other people because they'll help you decipher, well, was that appropriate or inappropriate what happened? I didn't consent, so what does that mean, you know? So being in relationships with others will help you clarify some of the conflict you have within. And dialogical self-theory from psychology is one tool that helps us unpack the many aspects of that. Another theory we'll be using is Gestalt theory that helps us think about persons as becoming. So what's the trajectory, what's the movement in a person's life towards where they're going? And that's something that I like to link with um, Christ-likeness because I think that one of the key works that God does for us in restoring human nature is to make us Christ-like, to make us peacemakers, pure of heart, merciful, people that grieve over the bad things in the world. That's a new kind of a person. And that's a great way to be a person in the world. If my neighbourhood was filled with peacemakers who were pure-hearted, we'd all be better. Mm -hmm. Christ really maps onto some very helpful psychological ideas, and those psychological notions help us in turn think about, well, what, what does it mean to be pure-hearted with respect to motivation towards others? So then, you know, we drill down into motivation studies from psych science. There's, wow. there's just so much there, and yeah. I think that's why... Theopsych was just amazing because it just opened everybody's eyes to this whole world of psychological science and how we can draw it together for the good of our communities and the glory of God. So it was just great. You had mentioned in the email exchange, there's an, a dimension of this where you're tying it to if it's correct to say that God is a person. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that aspect and is that yeah. the same as asking the question is god personal maybe it's right the same yeah thing. so there's a kind of a big debate right now in academic theological circles which is can god be a thought of and be spoken of as a person and some people say yes he can because it's very intuitive for us to pray to god and it seems that God acts in not just personal ways, but he is akin or very much alike or understood by analogy as a person. However, for a number of Trinitarian reasons, you don't want to say he's a person because he's actually three persons. Also using right. the language person for the Godhead creates confusion if you're also using the language of person for Father, Son, Spirit. Also, the language of person hasn't got a long and strong use in the Christian tradition. So there are a number of worries about that. Those worries have largely been ignored. So my paper in this project is to say, let's think about the is God a person debate. And I say, hey, maybe we're using the wrong terminology. If he is a person, what kind of model of a person do we have in mind? It's not a secular individual. It's actually God is, if you're gonna talk about him as a person, He's more like a dialogical self kind of person. He is a person who has three I positions within himself. So he's constituted by these three. And that's the kind of person he is. So he's a person on the inside. Being in communicative relations on the inside is what qualifies God as a person, if you're going to use that language. He isn't qualified as a person merely by the fact that he relates to you and I. Because before creation, then he would be non-person and then change to being a person after creation. So basically you say, if you're going to use person language, psychology has a really helpful model you can use. 
to give you a better account of what kind of a person he would be if you want to talk in those ways. Yeah, so I'm just trying to come into the debate and go, hey, there's a Trinitarian dimension here and psych science can help us be mindful of that. That's really helpful. What are you doing with Josh Cocaine? Are you working yeah. on Project Sam as well? I released God of All Comfort and there was a group at the University of St Andrews who formed a little study group reading the book. And they are science-engaged theologians. One is Joshua Cocaine, who is in Theopsych 2. And another one is Preston Hill, who is himself openly a survivor um, of horrors and trauma and has a PhD in Christ's descent into hell and is a real leader in the theology trauma conversation. So those two were part of the reading group. One of them wrote a book review of God of All Comfort saying, hey, this is great, but we want more. And my response was, okay, help me with them all. I can't do it on my own. So let's do it together. And so we started doing it and we work really well as a team. I call us the Three Musketeers. And um, <laughs> so, so we, we just got on with it and we're, we're writing a book focusing on the safety dimensions of recovery. And the book has a lovely title. It's called Dawn of Sunday. And th this is actually really important to us because in the literature on recovery in terms of psychology and theology, there's sort of, there tends to be three positions. And we can use the analogy of the Easter weekend here. One approach to recovery from trauma from a theological, psychological perspective is what we might call the Good Friday or Bad Friday, which is it just focuses on death, dismemberment, absence, loss, and it just leaves you there. Another model is the Holy Saturday model, which is to do with Jesus. He's dead, but sort of conscious suffering or proclaiming victory in the realm of the dead, and maybe there's some kind of hope. And then you have what you see in evangelical circles, which is full-on Resurrection Sunday. Yes, I know you've suffered you know, terrible violence in the past, but don't worry about it. Life's different now. You're a Christian. You're risen with Christ. Just, like, forget about it and move on. And Josh, myself, and Preston are like, we're not into only the horrors of Friday. More has happened than just the descent of Christ. Christ is risen. We have his spirit today. But we're not quite there in terms of victory. Where we are is the dawn of Resurrection Sunday. Mm. We are, we're emerging from horrors and trauma, brought into the light of dawn through the spirit and the resurrection and participation in the church. And we're at the dawn of Sunday. The rest of healing will come later, but for now we're at the beginning. So that's why we're calling the book Dawn of Sunday. And that's a model for thinking about how to draw theology and psychology together with respect to recovery. We think it's a healthy pastoral position. We think it's realistic. We think it's backed up by science and theology and pastoral care. And the book is under contract with Finstock, and we're hoping to have it out later on this year. So we're really excited. Dawn of Sunday. Wow, congrats. Thanks. Yeah, when I was like preparing to talk to you, I was like, wow, this your book came out before the year of 2020 when everything sort of felt upside down. And I was listening to your interview on the On Script podcast, and you were talking about Australians having this sense of like even the land doesn't want wants to yes. kill you. <laughs> the out of control fires in every state, and one of our states lost two thirds of its land to fire. It was that bad. 
just awful. And I think we, I think right now, because of the pandemic, the whole world sort of has a little bit of that sense that you're talking about is exists in Australia kind of <laughs> all the time. But we're all like, okay, we can't go to the grocery store because of this yeah. virus, right? You know, it's like it's this it's a sense of doom that's sort of hanging over everyone's head. And it has felt heavy. I mean, to me, like the whole year felt heavy. And, and there was overlapping disasters happening. Like yeah. like the fire, we had, you know, the fires in Australia and the you know, the racial reckoning that's happening in the yeah. States and the spread yeah. throughout the world as well. Mm -hmm. And it's just felt so heavy and like a sense yeah. of this sort of at least low grade horror doom yeah. sort of hanging over everyone's yeah. head, like on, yeah. on a global yeah, scale. Definitely. Th those things add up to be what I call commonplace horrors. And they do wear us down. You know, it's tiring to live under all these constant threats. And it means that we're just not flourishing as we could, and we're not there for one another as we could be. So yeah, in light of the pandemic and everything that's happened, this work on horror and trauma and recovery is really vital. And what I'm, I preach in churches, and my key concern is to say that God still cares. Despite everything, God does care for us. Don't walk away from God. Yeah, I think... Faith is really key because it's by faith that, which of course that's not more, sometimes easier said than done, but you know, by faith, a lot of those benefits are mediated to us as we're brought into the life of God and that the, the love of God creates opportunity for hope, for flourishing yeah. when it doesn't seem possible. Yeah. 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 So we, I mean, we really need to hang on to each other at the same time as God, because it's through each other that God mediates a lot of his care. Yeah, yep. which is why it's been particularly difficult in isolation from one another to experience that love. For sure. Yeah. For sure. It makes it doubly hard. We got to yeah, sure. get real, real creative. <laughs> real yeah, creative. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should end it there, Scott. This has been Great, thank you. really good. This podcast is brought to you by Blueprint 1543. Learn more about our mission, vision, and resources at blueprint1543.org. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion.